in the movie Pay It Forward. There's a seventh grader by the name of Trevor who watches his teacher, his social studies teacher, unveil an all-year assignment to change the world. And this morning, we're here to talk about how God might use us to change the world. And I want you to watch what happened in this classroom. What does the world expect of us? Expect. Mm -hmm. Of you. What does the world expect of you? Nothing. Nothing. My God, boys and girls, he's absolutely right. Nothing. I mean, here you are, you can't drive, you can't vote, you can't even go to the bathroom without a pass from me. You're stuck right here in the seventh grade. But not forever. Because one day, you'll be free. All right, but what if on that day you're free, you haven't prepared, you're not ready, and then you look around you and you don't like what the world is? What if the world is just a big disappointment? You're stuck. Unless you take the things that you don't like about this world and you flip them upside down and you can start that today. This is your assignment. Extra credit. It goes on all year long. Now, wait a minute. What? What? What's wrong with this? What's the matter? Yes? It's like so... So what? There must be a word to finish that sentence. Someone help her? Weird. Crazy. Crazy. Hard. Bummer. Bummer. Hard. How about possible? It's possible. The realm of possibility exists where? In each of you. So I want to ask you a direct question this morning, and this isn't just preachery kind of stuff. I really want you to grapple with this question, and it's very simply this. What does God expect of you? What does God expect of us? Nothing? What if God were to come right now and whisper in your ear or somehow speak to all of us together and say, Change the world. I want you to change the world. What would you think? Weird? Impossible? Too hard? Bummer? Can't do it? Really, I mean, what would you think if God asked you to do that? I believe this morning that God could speak to you as an individual and call you to change the world and the world would be changed. I also believe that God could speak to you and to me and to all of us and ask us to change the world and if we acted on it, the world would be changed. How many of you have been listening to politics lately? Yes, you can't help but listen to politics lately, right? And it is very, very exciting and interesting and I am not here to represent one party or another 
But one of the things I notice is that at least the two major parties, the Democrats and Republican, they're all promising us that they're going to bring hope and change and that they have the right combination of leaders, men and now women, women, that can save America and transform our lives. And if you hadn't figured it out already, most of that is just a bunch of what? Hot air. I figure I better fill that in very quick. This is a contemporary service. It's just a bunch of hot air. Now, I'm not saying they don't have good intentions, but humanly speaking, man can't save the world, and, and man can't transform the, uh, America, let alone the nation or human life. And there is no political entity, human organization on earth that can do that. However, I do believe there is one organization on earth that could, could change the world. And that organization, part of it, is sitting in this building right now, and it's called the church. Yes, you and I. Say, wait a minute. I'm a frail, I'm a fickle, I'm a broken, I'm an imperfect human being. How on earth could God use me, let alone a whole bunch of us that are messed up? The answer to that question is, God can't use you and me if we step out on our own and take it on as a human challenge. But I want to remind you what the Bible calls us. You and I are noted as the body of who? The body of who? Christ. And greater is, in me, is, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And I can do all things through him who strengthens me. God could use you, God could use us to change our city. And I mean every city represented here if... If we were to believe him for it. I really believe that, don't you? Oh, you're convincing. (laughs) Do you believe that God could use you and use us to change the world? That's a hard question to answer. We want to say yes, but our problem is we don't see a whole lot of evidence of it, do we? I mean, little bits and pieces here, but not a really overwhelming amount of evidence. I still believe it can happen. But in order for that to happen, we have to be committed to a few things. Number one, we must become missional in our mindset and in our heart. Now, I have some bad news for you, all right? And I'm not here to discourage you, but I just want to speak the truth. Sometimes you've got to look in the mirror and see what's going on, right? Sometimes you've got to look in the mirror and realize you're losing your hair. You've just got to accept the fact things are changing, Right? Sometimes the church needs to look in the mirror and see what's really happening. In the United States right now, according to Wynn Arn and other church experts, 80% of our 360,000 churches are flatlined and going downhill. We close over 5,000 churches in America every year and don't open or plant or start nearly enough churches to keep up with the number that are closing. So that puts us in a deficit, and it creates a huge question, and that is, what is wrong? What is happening? Why is the church dying? Why are we losing our influence? And the answer to that question is, I think, by and large, at least in America, we have forgotten why we're here in the first place. Why are we here in the first place? Why did God put us here? You know, the picture that Jesus has of the church in the Bible in the New Testament is not the picture that I see in our nation today, in our communities. 
What is the picture that Jesus has of his church? Familiar words to some of you, but turn open to Matthew chapter 16 for a moment. And let me just read beginning at verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of death will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth, be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And I want you to zero in on one verse, verse 18. It's on the screen. Let's read it aloud together. Ready? Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. I love that verse. That is Jesus' picture of his church. It's this force that breaks down the very you know, gates of hell, goes in and sets people free. And it's a picture of the church penetrating the darkness of this world where Satan is the god of this world and he has blinded the minds of people. He's fed them a bunch of lies that they've bought. We go in there, right? And we go in with the the truth of the gospel and we go in there with the love of Christ and we extricate, we rescue people. And that is why we've been left here on earth. I love what it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Read it aloud with me, will you please? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I love that first line, but you will receive what? Power. What kind of power? Divine power. The power of God. The power of the Holy Spirit. That's a way different picture of the church that I'm hearing described in the Bible than I see working in our nation today. Don't you think so? Churches that are going in and rescuing people with truth and with love and setting them free and not doing it in their own strength, but in the dynamite, the dunamis of the gospel, the power of the Spirit of God working in us and through us. That Folks, that is the picture of what the church should be. That's what it means to be missional. I want to ask you a question this morning, very personal question. Think about it. When you wake up every day, no matter how old you are, when you wake up every day, do you wake up with a sense of mission? Do you wake up with a sense that you were put here and left here on this earth to make a difference? I do. Ever since I've been a little boy to this very moment, though I've had my moments and my days, generally speaking, I wake up and I know, I know that God put me here to lead a movement. I know that God put me here to make a difference. I know that as sure as I'm living and breathing and it bothers me and it drives me and I can't, I I hardly ever have a day when I don't think about that. What are we doing to make a difference? Are, Are we seeing lives change? Now, when you get up, do you think that way? Most of us don't. Most of us get up and think of ourselves as a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, a teenager. We get up and think of ourselves as a student, as an employer, an employee, as, as a uh, uh, teacher or an artist or whatever it is. And, and we just kind of go through life doing our thing. 
Few of us get up and say, I was born for a reason. I was born to make a difference. I was born to fulfill God's plan to change this world. And what happens is when all of us wake up feeling that way and come together as the church of Christ, I'm telling you what, not even the gates of hell can stop us. And that's why the church in America right now is not doing very well because we are just minding the store. So we got to be committed to be missional. 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 Does it bug anybody else to see empty seats here on Sunday morning? I don't think it does. Man, it bothers me. I go through the psychological, spiritual battle every weekend when I see empty seats. Because, you know, I look and I go, God, there should be people in those seats whose lives are being changed. We should be a force together. All in Naperville and Bolingbrook and all our communities should be thinking, what's going on in that corner? Missional. We got to be committed to being transformational. Transformational. I love Matthew 28, 19, 20, the words of Jesus. Jesus was a radical in his day. Do you know that? Like he was on the fringe. He was a radical. Listen to what he says. Read it together with me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Even to the end of the age. Boy, you look at that passage and what Jesus is talking about is transformation. He's saying, go into the world and share by love and by truth my hope and my son. And, and people, when they receive Christ, they begin to transform. And we transform our whole lives to one day we stand before God and we're complete. How many of you wish you were complete now? Yeah, don't we? I mean, you know, some of us wish some people we know were complete, right? But we're in a process, and we aren't perfect people. We aren't. None of us are. We're failing. We mess up. But, man, we we get back on the horse, and we're moving toward that day, and we'll be completed. And the gospel, the church's responsibility, our responsibility, is to help each other get there and help more and more people enter that process. But we've got a problem in America today, in the American church. We have a tendency, we have a tendency to think about transformation and godliness as as knowledge. We're kind of knowledge-based. And and we think that to be spiritually mature, to be transformed, is to know more and more and more of the Bible. I want to tell you something right now. It is not how much you know of the Bible that makes you a godly mature individual is how much you take of what you know and practice and live it out in your everyday life that makes you mature or godly. I know way more about the Bible than I really try to practice in my life. But if I spend my whole time just trying to accumulate more knowledge and more theology, more tricks of Scripture, more Hebrew, more Greek, but I don't live it out, I'm a what? I'm a hypocrite. And that's one of the biggest problems in American church. I'm reading a book right now called Unchristian that really is shaking my little world, as you can probably tell. 
It's written by Christians, and it's about what's happening in America today with a certain age demographic, 16 to 29-year-olds. If you are in the age group of 16 to 29 years of age, would you raise your hand right now? So we got some here. And according to this book, 16 to 29-year-olds, generally speaking in America, have been to church a few times in their life, a Christian church. At least they know a Christian, and yet many of them, a high percentage of them, are rejecting the church, rejecting God, rejecting Christ. And listen, the statistics of those 16 to 29-year-olds in the church turning away from God are just as great as those who don't go to church regularly. And it used to be with the boomer age group, my age group, a little older and a little younger than me, that if we left high school and stopped going to church and we got married and had kids, we what? We came back. But this demographic, this age demographic is not coming back. Why? Because of hypocrisy. There's six reasons, but that's the biggest reason, hypocrisy. You and I live in an image-driven culture. Right? We turn on the television, we look at the billboards, everybody's putting an image on. And the image is an image that looks good. But more and more, the image is being exposed in all kinds of ways. And we're seeing behind people that they're pretty shallow, that they don't always do what they say. Politicians, preachers, especially on TV, businessmen, businesswomen, teachers, athletes, actors. And so that age demographic, 16 to 30-year-olds, are saying, you know what, everybody's hypocrite, and I don't see any reality. I don't see Christians being any different than anybody else in the world. I am not into this. I'm going to do my own thing. You can't blame them in certain ways. And until we become transparent and transformational, until they see the real deal, until we become so committed to living out what we know and practicing it and and ever-changing that I could be drawn to us. And incidentally, incidentally, in this same book, it goes on to say that the most important ministry a church should have right now, guess what? It's not necessarily the 16 to 20-year-olds or to 29-year-olds. You know who it is? It's children. Because we're finding out by the time they're 16 to 29, they're becoming cynical already. And we used to think that cynicism belonged to, you know, folks who were older. We have a whole youth movement that's become cynical. So I walked away from that. I, I had no problem telling you the most important ministry in this church is, is, is the children's and youth ministry. Way beyond any other ministry in this church. And the others are not, I'm not saying others aren't important, but those are two flags that we have to raise out. I mean, right now I'm grieved because we have 50 open slots in our children's ministry. I haven't been filled yet. And I'm thinking, you know, we have 500 kids here on a weekend who are children and about 400 during the week for a while. And I'm thinking, God, you know, are we just going to fold our hands and let our children and grandchildren go to hell? Become skeptical? Become cynical? Will we just eventually all close our doors and be a secular nation? Is that what we want? Folks, listen to me carefully. If you and I don't think this through... We are spelling the doom for generations to come. And the danger is, some of us are going to sit there and go, yeah, he had to preach a sermon. They needed children, children's ministry, and he worked that in. <laughs> just being honest with you. Just telling you the reality of what's happening in the American church today, and it's happening right here to some degree. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, one of the things is, is we have to become committed. We have to become committed. We have to become committed to 
to, to seeing the, the church truly transformed, to looking like the church in the book of Acts. I love this picture of what the church should look like. Acts chapter 2 says, beginning in uh, verse 38, Peter had preached this, you know, this great message. People saying, what are we doing? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your church and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from the corrupt generation. So those who accepted this message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. And so I have now made it, you know, it's my prayer that God would put 3,000 people on this corner, men, women, and children whose lives are being transformed. We're at about 2,000 or so. I want to see 3,000 people jam in this place on the weekends, being transformed by the grace of Christ. And somebody's sitting there right now, and I know what you're thinking. He's in the numbers. I am. I confess it. I admit it. Every number stands for a life, a human life that matters to God. Oh, you're just into ego and arrogance. You know, there's not a day that I don't fall on my knees before God and ask him to check my motives because I'm just as susceptible to, I'm a competitive person. I'm susceptible to wanting to be the biggest and the best too. And every day I say, God, if that's my motive, take me out. Check me on this because I don't want to live for my glory. God forbid. And God and I deal with that every day. But every day I also wake up and understand that God did not call me to mind the store. God did not call me just to live for the sake of living. God called me and I think God called us to make a huge difference. And it involves getting people and living for others and not just for ourselves. And I love what happens in this picture. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they contributed to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Isn't that cool? Wouldn't you want to be a part of that culture, that environment? Okay, eight of us. You don't want to be a part of something like that? You want to be part of this magnetic group where people are living unselfishly, transparently, confessing their sins, forgiving one another, getting God's forgiveness, seeing people healed, seeing people's lives honestly, genuinely changed? You won't want to be part of that. God asks you a question, and the question is, will you change the world? Do you believe that God could change our city? If we got serious like that, you know, God could do it, but we'd have to get committed to some things. First of all, we would really have to get radically committed to the Word of God. Not as a history book, not as a bunch of rules and regulations. I'm tired of Christians being known for what they're against. I think it's time for us to be known for what we're for, the truth and the love of God and the grace of God. Yes, we should speak out about what's wrong and what's sinful, but you know what? Let's not forget that God forgives and God is a love of grace. That when God, when Jesus looked at the woman caught in adultery, what did he offer her right away? Did he condemn her and damn her on the spot? No, he forgave. How would God treat a homosexual if he met one this, you know, today? Would he damn and condemn and talk about how bad homosexuals are? No, what would he show? He would show mercy and grace and forgiveness. And understand what may have led to that and, and embrace that person with hope. 
Would they have to change? Absolutely, they'd have to change. But you know what? Hey, folks, anybody here besides me imperfect? Right? And God's grace and God's patience. We've got to be committed to the Word of God. It's the Word of God that changes us. It's the Word of God that tells us how God wants to uh, transform us. It's the Word of God that every day speaks to us and guides us. And we've given you a tool called journaling. If you don't have a journal, you know, you can start journaling today. Go to the Resource Center and ask them to give you the message that I taught last year on how to journal called Moral Compass. It's such a neat tool because it will lift the words out and help you live it in your life. We've got it for adults, for teens, for people who aren't, you know, real familiar with the Bible and folks who are. We've got to become committed to the Word of God. Secondly, we've got to become committed to prayer. Not just the now I lay me down to sleep kind of prayer. Remember when you learned that when you were a kid? Now I lay me down to sleep and pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Remember that little prayer? God wants us to pray prayers that are passionate, like prayers about God changing hearts and changing lives, including our own. Prayers that say, God, you know, use me, use us, make a difference. Prayers that plead with God. Remember, we're 911 here for God till he calls us home. We need to be committed to the weekend, to the weekends. So many people come to church when it's convenient. You know, when 9-11 happened, church attendance went up or down? Went up. After we got past 9-11 a little ways, church attendance kept going up, right? Went down, even lower. I don't want us to have to have a crisis, but that's what it takes, fine. But you know, this world kind of numbs us to our need for God. And we need to become committed to the weekends, to being here to worship God in music, to worship God in song and testimony. We need to be here to offer God our offerings, to promote the vision. We need to be here to serve one another. Serve one another. I hope when the service is over, there's a long line at the children's kiosk and you're willing to serve. So well, I don't want to serve kids. What's your definition of service? Somebody challenged me with that the other day. They said, well, you know, I want to serve in my area of giftedness. You know, Jesus said when, you know, Jesus demonstrated in John chapter 13 that, that serving is washing people's feet. We don't all want to wash feet. A servant spirit says, I'll do whatever, wherever. It doesn't matter. I just want to be used by God. That's the attitude we have to have. And then show up on a weekend to hopefully hear a prophetic word from God. To inspire us, to challenge us, to correct us sometimes, to encourage us. We also need to be committed to fellowship. Small groups in a large church. We'll talk to you more about this soon. But just being in a small group to lift each other up, hold each other accountable, pray with each other, cry with each other, encourage each other, build each other up. My small group has meant so much to me and to my wife. We need to be here in order to witness. You know, to let the world know of God's love and God's grace. Witnessing by our actions as much as by our words. Now, I want to take a little change right here because I've been kind of telling you about what we ought to do. Now I want to show you some ways that we are providing for you to grow spiritually yourself and to invite your friends on the journey with you who aren't here yet. This past summer, I went away for three weeks to work on the messages for the next nine months. I didn't write them all out, but I got through a lot of material and sorted it out and prayed it out. And here's what I want to talk about the next nine months that I feel God is leading me to talk about. I want you to see it so that you can see what's coming and how God wants to shape your life. And, and I also want you to see messages that you can invite friends and family to. 
For instance, this September, we're going to do a series called The Last Days. Does it feel weird to you, our culture, feel like something's going on in our world? People have all kinds of questions. There's this card in your worship folder. Give it to somebody. Encourage them to come. Next weekend, we're going to talk about the signs of the times. In this series, for four weeks, we're going to say, what's going on in our world? Look at what the Bible, how the Bible said this would be going on in our world. How do you and I live through it? How do we deal with it? When is the Lord returning? Or what will it be like when he comes back? In October, I'm going to do a series on cantaloupes. You don't want to miss that. I'm going to be talking about, you know, how God wants to bless and multiply our resources. The last message, we're going to introduce a brand new ministry called Compassion Ministry. And more than at any other time in the history of this church, we're going to provide avenues for you all to go out and get your hands dirty and help people and just show God's love. In November, we're going to do a very cool series called If You Only Had One Month to Live. It's going to be like 40 Days of Purpose. Everybody, our kids, our adults, small groups, it's all going to be focused on that book and on those messages. And we're just going to talk about what would change in my life if I had only one month to live. You ever thought about that? Some of us in this room right now may only have one month to live. We don't even know it yet. We want to live every moment for God. Every moment in a way that will be satisfying. So we come to the end of that time, we'll feel like, man, life was worth living. In December, we're going to do a series called God's Editorial on the Top Stories of 08. You know, what does God have to say about the slumping economy, about the next president, and two more stories that are probably yet to happen? And maybe Gustav will be one of them. I don't know. I hope not. January and February, we're going to talk about fear by looking at the life of David. So many fears in our culture today. We're going to talk about that. Then we're going to take chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians and four weeks work on chapter 1 and talk about what it means to be chosen by God. What a privilege it is to be chosen in a world that doesn't want you. Then uh, we're going to, in March and April, talk about chapter 2 for four weeks. What does it mean to be transformed? Remember that little saying, transformers what? More, thank you, more than meets the eyes, right? That should be us. Easter, doorway to heaven. Then we're going to talk about parenting. And then finally, we're going to do chapter 3 of Ephesians and talk about no limits. It's going to be a radical year of preaching. You don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss it. You want to be here. God's going to transform. God is going to change your life. So for those of you who thought I just went and sat on the beach for three weeks, no. All right? Lots of prayer, lots of study, and lots of things that went into that. All right? Now, I want to tell you about some very cool activities that we have planned as a church for you to have some fun. Did you know Christians could have fun? To have joy. Did you know you could have joy? You know, the world thinks we're all a bunch of sour people. Like, you know, that we were just cranky and unhappy. That's what I thought, and I grew up in the church. I looked around on, on Sunday morning, I thought, these are the most depressing, nasty people. They're always talking about what they are against. Well, we want to provide some opportunities for you to bring your friends here to realize we're not all so weird. So we got like Big Daddy Weave coming, right? In uh, September, how many, how many of you are Big Daddy Weave kind of people? Let me see your hands. All right. I asked the first crowd, 930, which is a little more, you know, traditional, and like five people raised their hand. Uh, Big Daddy Weave's coming, all right? We have uh, celebration services on one Sunday a month. First one September 21st, where we do baptism, baby dedications, testimonies, music. It's going to be an awesome experience. Have some cake and punch out there. 
Uh, we have a new marriage ministry that launches in January. We are going to be the church known for reaching out to folks who are struggling in their marriages. And, we, and that ministry is going to help people who have good marriages have even better ones. My dear friends, Clinton Penny, who were here a few months ago and are coaches through that. It's going to be an awesome, awesome year. We are going to reach. If you change your marriage, you change your family. You change your family, you change the world. You do. You honestly do. We have Planet Wisdom Youth Conference coming up that we're hosting. All right. And about, what, a thousand youth will be here from all over the place. That'll be very cool. We have children's birthday parties. How many of you, how many of you ever been to Chuck E. Cheese? Didn't want to go back again. We're doing like the Christian version of Chuck E. Cheese, right, Joan? So like in September, this is the kids' ministry, no adults, please. So in September, all right, any kid who has a birthday in September comes here for a big birthday bash, brings their friends. We get to love them, show God's grace and God's goodness. Isn't that cool? Great, great, great idea, all right? Comedy night in November, Christian comedy, Christmas concert. We got other artists we're trying to sign up, Easter. Those are just some of the cool activities. You know what? We have to have, we have, to have more staff, though, to help us with this. In some cases, some of our staff have gone on to other ministries, and, and we have a void to fill. And so we're, we're going to hire somebody to help us with small groups and adult ministries. We're talking to somebody now. We're looking at hiring somebody, hopefully soon, for the performing arts ministry to get that kicked off and going. We're hiring somebody to help us communication both inside and outside of the church. All right? And, uh, and, and get that stronger. And, you know, if we're going to have 3,000 people here on a weekend, isn't that exciting? <laughs> I wonder what percentage that sound bite is. I'm still not convinced that you're convinced that that would be a good thing. Just our nature. It's it's not our nature to live for others. But if we're going to really grow, we're going to have room. Saturday night is a cool place. We've got some awesome things scheduled on Saturday night. Beginning next weekend, we want to grow Saturday night. But listen, um, there's some property next to us here that's just come up for sale. About 2.3 acres. And we're negotiating with the owner to try to buy it. The congregation has to vote to approve that. But we're just trying to get him to a place where he'll sell it to us at a reasonable price. Please do not go over there and pick it. Please do not go over there and ring the doorbell. Just pray. Would you do that? Because we want to be good neighbors. If it's in God's will, we hope we can get that. That would help us build another building over here, which are, right now we've got drawings for, but it has to be kind of downsized and brought into a good price range. We're also working on that. And we're trying to balance those two things to see what God is saying, but more room is coming down the line. Now, with all that said this morning, and that's just a slice, with all that said this morning, it is nothing more than a bunch of hot air If you and I don't believe in our heart of hearts that God can do it and become committed passionately and expecting him to do it. So I ask you one more time. Do you believe that God could use you and us to change our city? You know, some some people think that God's done. And I watched like the Democratic, parts of the Democratic Convention. That's all I could stomach. And, and, and not so you think I'm against Democrats. I can, I'll only be able to stomach a little bit of the Republicans as well. All right? Because it just, I'm telling you what, it really, it just unnerves me to watch a whole bunch of people crying, applauding, and all the stuff that goes on. And it can't make near the impact the church of Jesus Christ 
can and could. If we, listen, if we got just as passionate, I don't think God's done with our world yet. I really don't. I don't think C.H. Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, and some of these, you know, pastors and evangelists and churches of the past, you know, I, I don't think it's a close chapter. I think God is still the God of this universe. I think God could still change the world. And I heard this song by Chris Tomlin the other day called God of the City. And I asked Sherry if she would teach it and lead us in it. And I want you to just sit there and listen to the pretty voices up here sing. I want you to sing it and sing it with a sense of here's what God can do. So let's all stand together and sing this song.